Good morning, Celebrate. So I always tell Matt that I like having to follow an upbeat song before I come up here. And man, that song does it, doesn't it? Whew, there's some energy in this joint. All right. We are going to continue this morning in our sermon series titled, What's in Store? And for me, it's been fascinating in these sermon series we've been going through. And as you look through all of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how these four different authors tell the same story of Jesus' life, but they tell it from such different angles. And we see Matthew telling this story, but he's writing it to the Jewish people. And he's writing it to them because these Jewish people have long been waiting for the, prophets, the prophecies to be fulfilled, that there's this coming Messiah, the Anointed One who would rescue them from their Roman oppressors, and he would establish with them this new kingdom. And as their king, he would rule with justice. But many Jews, however, missed the prophecy that this man would come as a suffering servant, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed. They were expecting a great military leader. So it's no wonder that few recognize Jesus, right? How could this humble, poor carpenter's son from Nazareth be their king? But Jesus was the king. Jesus still is the king. Jesus will always be the king. And we see in Matthew, he uses the word fulfilled a lot to explain that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But he also does an amazing job of recording the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' explanation on how the kingdom is supposed to work. Chapters 5 through 7 that we've been going through, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a red-letter Bible, these three chapters are all written in red. These are the words of Jesus. And like I said, chapter 5 starts by explaining that he has fulfilled all these things. And as we did in our previous sermon series, the words, so you have heard, are mentioned quite a bit. Jesus says, so you have heard what the world tells you, but I say to you. And then he explains how he's fulfilled these things. And then in chapter 6, we see how we're supposed to do a better job of living a kingdom life. He gives us a do and don't list, if you will. How to give to the needy. How to fast. How to pray. How to store up our treasures in heaven. And then as Aubrey taught on last week, we're supposed to do all of that and yet not worry. And he frames these two chapters, five and six, around the fact that we have a heavenly father that loves us. And when we hear that, we're like, yes, we need a father who loves us. And then we get to chapter 7, and he says, there is a father who loves you, but he is also a judge. That's not quite as fun to deal with, a little harder to digest. And oftentimes when we think about the father, we relate him to our earthly fathers. That's fair because that's, that's all we know. I was lucky to have an amazing, still have an amazing earthly father. And when you have that, it gives you a sense of peace, a sense of comfort. 
that gives you confidence, knowing that there is this person who loves you unconditionally, will do anything for you. But with that, it also brings this, maybe even fear of disappointing them, of doing something wrong because you know that they will hold you accountable. But the reality is that's what a good father is supposed to do. They're supposed to teach you. They're supposed to hold you accountable. And in chapter 7, we see Jesus preaching to these people that they have choices to make. And we're going to see in the coming weeks that he teaches on things like two trees, two paths, two foundations. Why is he doing all this? Because he is calling us to a decision. We all have a decision to make. And someday, we will all be held accountable for those decisions. And it's really kind of what we try to do here every Sunday. I mean, sure, we show up and we get our coffee and we love the fellowship and there's, there's power in worshiping together. Hopefully you hear a good sermon, maybe take a couple notes. That's all good. But then if we just leave and go to lunch and go about the rest of our week, like none of that matters. It doesn't help in our decisions. Whoever is up here teaching on a Sunday, we're trying to do similar to what Jesus was doing. To lead us all into making more kingdom decisions. To lead into what he's calling us to do. Because it matters. It matters. It matters in this life, and we're going to be held accountable for it in the next. Aubrey taught last week on worry. And she stood up here and she said, you know, I'm doing a better job of not worrying about little things anymore. But when it comes to teaching, I still worry. I get it. Because there's something about the magnitude of teaching God's word. Because we will all be held accountable. And it's no secret in our society that things seem to be growing increasingly darker by the day. Maybe by the hour. But this truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel... That is the light that will never get diminished. So he's calling us to make kingdom decisions so we can operate in the light and not in darkness. So what does he say about these decisions? Well, he starts in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He says, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not judge or you will be judged. However you judge others, you will be judged. That doesn't sound fun, y'all. That sounds hard. Here's the scariest part. This is probably one of the most misused, misinterpreted passages in all of the New Testament, if not all of Scripture. 
Because people that aren't Christians use this against Christians saying, you can't judge me. But we can't just point fingers at them because we do this ourselves. As Christians, we say, well, you can't judge me or you will be judged. It's like we turn into an episode of Jerry Springer. How can you judge me? You don't even know me. Never thought you'd hear Jerry Springer in a sermon, did you? <laughs> don't judge me. Jesus is not telling us to just shut our brains off. He's not telling us you should never have a spine. You should never have an opinion. You should never have conviction. He's not saying that all lifestyles and all ideologies are okay. Just let it go. There are, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that teach us to judge. For example, John 7, 24, Jesus says this, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You're telling us don't judge, and now you're telling us to judge, but we got to do it correctly. Which is it? If you, if you look at the original language, there is a lot of words for the word judge or judgment. In English, we probably oversimplify it. But of all those words used in Scripture, there's only one way that that word judge or judgment is used, and it's bad. So this Greek word krino, it's this hypercritical evaluation of somebody. The hypercritical evaluation of somebody that pretends that you know that person's motives. That you believe that you know what's going on without even knowing the facts. It's a critical, condemning spirit that we believe that we are better than them, that we are above them, that we're different, that we're right, that they're wrong. And obviously, an easy example of how this plays out in our society is politics. Right? That's an easy, low-hanging fruit. I'm not, yeah. I'm not even going down that trail. And it's interesting when we judge things, how from person to person, we can see the same thing, but yet judge it differently. So take, for example, say you're walking down the sidewalk in Knoxville with a friend, and a Lamborghini drives by. We don't see many Lamborghinis in Knoxville. One of you might be thinking, man, that guy's rich. He must be powerful. He must be really big deal to drive a car like that. And at the same time, the other person looks at that and says, who would spend that much money on a car? That guy must have a serious ego issue if he's got to drive a car like that. Never mind the fact, we don't know who's driving it. Never mind the fact we don't even know if they own it. It might be a really nice rental or a loaner from a body shop. <laughs> they may have stole it. <laughs> but we put our judgment on them. But I think one of the important things that I need to point out 
is when we judge other people, it often reflects more of what's going on in our own hearts versus the person we're judging. Think about that for a moment. When you judge someone, it's revealing of what's going on in your heart, not what they're doing. Scripture give us, gives us a great example of what that looks like. In 2 Samuel, we see this story of King David. Powerful king. Got everything that he could possibly want. He's got many, many wives. But then one day, he's up on the roof of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. So he sends his servants to bring Bathsheba to him. And if you know how the story plays out, he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant. So King David's like, okay, this is not good. I got to figure this out. So he calls for Uriah, her husband, to come back from the front line of the war. He tries to get him drunk and send him home, thinking that hopefully that they will sleep together and the child will be his. He wasn't counting on Uriah being a stand-up man. Uriah said, I can't go home. If my men are sleeping in tents and on the ground, who am I to sleep in my own bed? So King David panics again, sends Uriah back to the front line and tells the men, when the war gets most heated, everybody else pull back so he'll be killed. So in a sense, he has him murdered. And then he ends up taking Bathsheba as his own wife, and they have another child. Story you've all heard. Here's where it plays out. Next thing we see is the prophet Nathan show up. He says, King David, listen, I got a story to tell you. There's two guys. One of them is really rich. He has got a huge herd of cattle. He's got more sheep than he can count. The other guy's poor. He's got one lamb. But man, he loves that lamb. It says he shares his food with it. He shares his drink with it. The lamb sleeps in his arms. He loves that lamb. But then Nathan, Nathan said, the rich man had a friend show up one day. And so we wanted to have a feast for him. And rather than go and take one of his many, he goes and takes the lamb, the one lamb from that man. He slaughters it, and they have a feast with it. And as King David hears this story of what this man did, this is what it says. He says, it burned with anger. David says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan simply says, you're that man. It's a great example, I think, of what we often do. Sure, we don't want to admit it. But we judge each other by the standard of what's going on in our hearts. Another way that Scripture talks about judgment is through discernment, right? Discerning what's right and wrong, judging what is good and what's evil. And Jesus even talks about this in, 
in verse 6 of chapter 7. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. If we move down to verse 15, that we'll hear more about in a couple of weeks. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So there's discernment there, right? Who's a pig? Who's a dog? What is a sheep? What's a wolf in sheep's clothes? It requires discernment and judgment. And we'll talk more about discernment in a minute, but it also says that we are to judge by the same measure that we want to be judged. And I'm probably going to oversimplify this a little bit. But I think more times than not, when we judge, we use one of two things, justice or mercy. The tricky part is, I think we have a way of messing them both up. Justice, in Scripture and in our culture, you're innocent until proven guilty, right? That's a good thing. That's a way of saying, what you are so valuable, you are so important, that we will not judge you, we will not convict you, we will not condemn you until all the facts are gathered, both sides are heard, and then we will decide. That's the way it's supposed to be. If we watch the news, we often have people convicted before they're even arrested. But a way that we can misuse justice is we'll just watch people. We'll keep track of what they say and do. We'll keep track of their sin, and we're just going to store that away. That way, if they ever come at me and try to tell me that I'm guilty of something, hey, guess what? You're guilty too. That's justice in our society. And when it comes to mercy, I think we tend to do the same thing a little bit. We watch people. We keep track of what they're doing. But we can misuse mercy by saying, yeah, I see that person who's living a destructive lifestyle. I see that they're abusive to their spouse or to their children. But who am I to judge? I have my own problems. And we just allow them to continue to live destructive. Rather than judging with mercy as Jesus does in a way that says, I love you. You matter to me. I want to help you. Jesus is teaching us in this passage to be judges, not judgmental. Ponder that for a minute. There's a big difference in those, that we are to judge but not be judgmental. And make no mistake about it, being judgmental is a huge issue in our culture. I would even venture to guess that there is a few people in this room, if not many people in this room, that may feel like I'm talking just to you today. And I say that because I know exactly how you feel. And as I pondered that this week, I thought, man, you know, I remember times in my life where people who I trusted or people that loved me would come to me and say, Judd, this is what you're doing. 
And when that happens to us, we, we want to get mad, right? We can, we can feel it building. We're trying to figure out a way to justify. But somehow in the back of our minds, we just have that, yeah, they're right. But like I said earlier, I'm not standing up here judging any of us. I'm trying to explain the scripture so we can begin to make more kingdom decisions. And Jesus goes on in verses 3 through 5 to explain more of how we're to do this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. Now, if you've never studied much scripture, when Jesus calls you a hypocrite, that's bad. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And when it says plank, if you have a different translation, it may use the word log. But notice the context that Jesus puts this in. He said, when we look at our brothers, now if you're an only child, this isn't a get out of jail free card. He's referring to brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about the church. It's almost like Jesus knew that the church was just going to be made up of a bunch of sinners bumping into each other. I've always wanted to put a sign above the doors that celebrate that says no perfect people allowed. I'll save that for a different sermon. But it's interesting to me where Jesus says to start when it comes to judging. He says, start with yourself. When we're judgmental, right, it reveals more of what's going on in our heart than the person we're judging. So Jesus says, start with yourself. Remove the log before you can help someone else. Another way I thought about it this week is Jesus wants us to be a coach versus a critic. Both people see what's wrong. But the coach sees what's wrong. He's learned how to do it the right way himself. He cares about you enough that he wants to teach you how to do it. A critic just says, you're wrong. What you're doing is stupid. But in order to do that, we have to start with ourselves. So when we think about being judgmental or we think about being overcritical, hypocritical, whatever adjective, or I don't know, maybe that's an adverb, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, it talks about having a log in our eye. So let's talk about the log for a minute. So if we walk around like this, I can't put it in my eye. I've got glasses on. Play along with me. So if we walk around like this, what does it do? Well, I think one of the things it does is it impairs our vision. It keeps us from seeing people for who they really are. It keeps us from seeing situations for what they really are. It keeps us from knowing other people's hearts. 
Another thing it does is it keeps us from being close to people. Keeps us from being close to the Lord. The bigger the log, the bigger the distance. And I think a third thing it does is it probably tends to hurt the people closest to us the most. If there's people close to me, it ain't good. And it can even lead us to feeling alone, distant from everybody, including the Lord. And make no mistake about it, friends, removing this is hard. It's scary. Probably even painful. But when we can do it, we have ways of seeing people the way that Jesus sees them. We have closer community. We get to love people well, experience freedom. A long time ago, I worked at Vermeer for a few months. And I only worked there for a few months because nationals came around and they wouldn't give me the time off, so I quit. <laughs> and I tell you that story today so you don't judge me. <laughs> but one night when I was at Vermeer, I got a, a sliver of metal in my eye, like a splinter of metal in my eye. And it hurt. So I went to the nurse. She said, well, Judd, you've got two choices. You can leave it in there. If you're lucky, it'll kind of fester and work itself out. If it doesn't, it's probably going to begin to rust your eyeball and cause permanent damage. So I said, well, I'll go to the eye doctor. So I get there, and he says, explain to me what happened. So I tell him the story, but what he said next shocked me. He said, I'm sorry that happened. Here's the good news. I can help you. I know how to get it out, and I can restore your vision. And somehow, in the way he said it, I knew I could trust him. So the next thing he did is he took me over to the chair, and he had me put all my chins up in this thing. And he shined this really bright light right in my eyeball. And then he said, don't move. This is going to hurt. <laughs> Any guess on what I did? I moved. So I'm sitting there, bright light, and he gets really close to me so he can see it. And then I see these tweezers coming in from the side. And as they touch my eyeball, a jerk. Not a good idea. So I look at the doctor as he leans back. It scared him as much as it scared me. And I could see the frustration on his face. And then he looked at me and he said, do you trust me? That was the real choice I had to make. So I leaned back in. And he was able to remove it. And he was right, it hurt. But he restored my vision. But I tell you that story 
Because Jesus takes the same posture with the plank in our eye. I want to help you remove it. Do you trust me? It may be painful, but do we trust him enough to want to restore our vision? Let me close by saying it like this. We are saved by grace through faith. That is our only sure and certain hope of getting to heaven. Saved by grace through faith. But one day we will also be judged for our lives. God is the one and final judge. And none of us are him. I heard a pastor this week as I was studying. And he talked about Revelations 21.4. It reads like this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And what he made, the comment he made next says he, the first thing that they mention is the wiping away of tears. Why is that? His thought on it was, the first thing we have to go through is our judgment. Before we can experience all the, the absence of pain or suffering or mourning, all those things, we have to be held accountable. And that's where the tears come. It's a sobering thought. But the other truth is, if God is the judge, and we are made in his image, we have the ability, we have the authority to judge. The choice is, how do we do it? How do we do it? Do we choose to be critical? Do we choose to be hypocrites? Do we choose to be judgmental? Or... Do we make kingdom decisions with grace, with discernment? Here's the long and short of it, friends. If we truly believe that we are made in God's image, if you truly believe that, the way we judge people matters. The way we see people matters. The way we treat people, how we make them feel, what we say, it all matters. The way we live our lives, the choices we make, they matter. The confession of our sin, our repentance, it matters. Our ability and willingness to remove these matters. Loving people well enough that we can help them remove the speck from their eyes, that matters. 
Jesus says, love yourself as you, or love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do we love ourselves enough to do this? So then we can love our neighbors well enough to remove the speck. Because Jesus loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. And because of our faith in him, if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and by his amazing grace, we have eternal hope. And when we are made in the image of God, we get an ability to judge. But you are so valuable. You matter so deeply to God. You are so significant to him. What you do matters so deeply to him that like a good father, he will one day hold you accountable for that. So what do we choose? Do we have things our way? Do we do what we think is right or what feels good? Or do we choose his way? Those are our choices. And only we get to choose. That's what's in store. Let's pray. We are grateful that you are God and we are not. We say that a lot around Celebrate. And we don't ever say it Sometimes we say it with a smile on our face, almost like it's a joke, but we are grateful that you are God and we are not. And we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we, in our mortality, judge other people to make ourselves feel better. It makes us feel more like you when we can find error in them. So we are guilty of the plank in our eye. So Jesus, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help to remove those planks. That we would have the ability to see people and love people the way that you see them. that we would stop hurting the people around us. That the plank would be removed so we could draw closer to people, that we could draw closer to you. But we need help. So as we continue to worship, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you give us the strength and the, encourage, the courage to see ourselves the way that you see us? That we can remove the plank. That we can love others well and help remove their speck. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your presence.
in this place and in us and through us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.